You are listening to Bonafide Needs, Season 2, Episode 10. Hi, welcome back to Bonafide Needs. I'm Bill Olver, Managing Editor of the PubK Group. After weeks of drama and legislative inaction, the House of Representatives finally has a new speaker. Representative Mike Johnson of Louisiana unexpectedly rose to the highest office in the chamber in only his fourth term. Later in this episode, legal and public policy experts from Arnold and Porter will join me to discuss the turmoil in the House, Johnson's plans and the prospects for must-pass legislation, how the Senate may react, and what contractors can do to prepare for another possible lapse in appropriations. But first, let's take a look at some recent headlines of interest. In September, the White House issued guidance to agencies on considering the social cost of greenhouse gases for budgeting and procurement decisions. This metric estimates the societal cost of the effects of various greenhouse gas pollutants. According to the White House, the consideration of SCGHG will help agencies estimate the total benefits and costs of regulations and help agencies weigh the full cost of alternative contracting approaches. The President's order directs agencies to consider SCGHG in the development and implementation of their budgets. The Office of Management and Budget will work with agencies to begin measuring baseline greenhouse gas emissions and then will use SCGHG to calculate the benefits and impacts of federal programs. This data will eventually be used to support agency budget requests. Agencies are also directed to consider SCGHG for discretionary grants, harm-based penalties, and international assistance. Finally, the President directed agencies to consider SCGHG when making contract awards. The FAR Council is considering a number of potential rules around the disclosure of greenhouse gas emissions and moving towards more sustainable federal purchasing. On October 3rd, the FAR Council issued two long-awaited proposed rules involving federal contractor cybersecurity requirements. The first proposed rule, Cyber Threat and Incident Reporting and Information Sharing, applies to contracts in which information and communications technology is used or provided during contract performance. The proposal includes updated definitions for terms such as security incident, Internet of Things devices, operational technology, and telecommunications equipment and services. The rule also sets out new requirements for contractors involving software bills of materials for any software used in contract performance, IPv6 implementation, cooperation with CISIP recommendations and requests, incident reporting, government access to contractor systems, and other areas. The proposed rule includes new additions to FAR Part 39, Acquisition of Information Technology, as well as two new FAR clauses to be included in solicitations and contracts. The second rule, Standardizing Cybersecurity Requirements for Unclassified Federal Information Systems, standardizes the requirements for contractors that develop, implement, operate, or maintain a federal information system. The rule provides a new definition of federal information system, which provides some clarity for contractors who provide or maintain an FIS for the government. The rule would also require agencies to plan and assess their FIS acquisitions to determine the appropriate security requirements. Both proposed rules expressly state that compliance is material to eligibility and payment under government contracts, raising the risk of False Claims Act liability for improper representations or failures to comply. These proposed rules will be open for public comment until December 4th, 2023. On October 5th, the Office of Management and Budget issued a proposed rule that would revise sections of the OMB guidance for grants and agreements. 
If implemented, this rule would increase various financial thresholds governing administrative obligations. It would also update the mandatory disclosure rule to require the disclosure of credible evidence of criminal conduct that could affect contract award or violate the False Claims Act. Comments on the proposal are due by December 4th. The General Services Administration is testing a voluntary self-assessment for vendors to certify that the IT products and services they sell to the government are both secure and authentic. The assessment consists of about 200 yes-no and short-answer questions to assess hardware design, data protection, and other cybersecurity supply chain risk management features. GSA says that one objective of the form is to provide a single instrument to avoid the burden of suppliers having to deal with multiple forms. The deadline for feedback on the questionnaire is November 10. The Attorneys General of Idaho, Indiana, Nebraska, and South Carolina have asked the Ninth Circuit to vacate a federal district court decision holding that President Biden has the power to raise federal contractors' minimum wage to $15 per hour. The states argue that only Congress has the power to do so. In a separate case, a federal district court in Texas said that the President does not have such authority, but that ruling barred the minimum wage increase only in Texas, Louisiana, and Mississippi. The Tenth Circuit also partially blocked the enforcement of the executive order increasing the minimum wage to $15, but only for specific firms that conduct business on federal land. The Armed Services Board of Contract Appeals recently sided with the contractor in a dispute over a time and materials contract. The appeal involved two contracting officer final decisions and demands for payment arising from the contractor's alleged failure to submit final indirect cost rate proposals for fiscal years 2009 to 2014. The contracting officer applied a significant decrement to all invoices the contractor submitted during that period, including the contractor's direct fixed-priced labor costs under four TMM contracts. In its appeal, the contractor argued that the agency had no authority to deduct direct labor hour charges under a TNM contract, and the board agreed. Although only one of the four contracts at issue included FAR 52.216-7 allowable cost of payment, the board held that all four contracts contained the clause under the Christian doctrine. That clause governs the process for reimbursing costs and setting final indirect cost rates and is required by FAR 16.307A. While the government argued that its decrement to direct labor hour charges was permitted, the board concluded that the regulatory language limited the application of FAR 52.216-7 only to material costs in TMM contracts. The Civilian Board of Contract Appeals recently held that government auditors may access firm fixed-priced cost data under certain conditions. In a recent appeal, the board held that because the cost reimbursement portion of the contract required a year-end incurred cost audit to establish indirect rates and verified claim costs, the government could reasonably audit the FFP contract portion as well to ensure that the contractor did not improperly claim reimbursement for costs covered by FFP line items or try to recoup FFP losses through indirect costs. After the contractor objected to the government's request for data regarding the firm fixed-price portion of its contract, the firm appealed to the board requesting in part a contract interpretation of the audit clause. The board sided with the agency, which argued that the risk of misallocating costs made it reasonable for the agency to ensure that indirect costs were properly allocated to the cost reimbursement CLINs. The board agreed, finding that the relevant FAR audit clause permits the government to fully audit FFP portions of hybrid contracts, provided there is any cost reimbursement portion to which the contractor could improperly shift costs. A new interim rule amends the FAR to provide guidance to contractors on prohibiting the use or sale of products deemed to be national security threats under Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Security Act removal and exclusion orders. 
Under this interim rule, contracting officers now have established procedures to implement fascia orders in existing or new federal contracts and to share relevant information on potential supply chain risk. Further, when submitting a new offer, contractors must certify that they do not propose to provide or use any prohibited covered articles or products or services subject to a fascia order. Additional procedures in the rule provide guidance to offers when they must disclose where they cannot comply with a fascia order. Throughout contract performance, contractors must inform the agency once they become aware that a covered article or product or service subject to a fascia order has been delivered to the government or used in performance of the contract. Comments on an information collection request associated with this rule will be accepted until November 17, 2023. The Department of Justice recently announced a new safe harbor for companies that discover wrongdoing during a merger or acquisition. The new department-wide policy aligns various voluntary self-disclosure policies used by different DOJ offices. Going forward, acquiring companies will receive the presumption of a declination to prosecute if they promptly and voluntarily disclose criminal misconduct within the safe harbor period, if they cooperate with an ensuing investigation, and if they engage in timely and appropriate mediation, restitution, and disgorgement. The safe harbor period provides that companies must disclose misconduct discovered at the acquired entity within six months from the date of closing. That applies whether the misconduct was discovered pre- or post-acquisition. Companies will then have a baseline of one year from the date of closing to remediate the misconduct. In announcing the new policy, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco also noted that the acquired firm could also qualify for benefits under the safe harbor policy, absent additional aggravating factors. According to Monaco, the department is placing a premium on timely compliance-related due diligence and integration during the M&A process. Companies that fail to engage in effective due diligence or fail to self-disclose risk being subject to full successor liability for any relevant misconduct. The early numbers are in, and it appears that False Claims Act recoveries increased slightly in fiscal year 2023 compared to last year's all-time low. According to an analysis by Arnold and Porter's White Collar Team, the Department of Justice obtained $2.6 billion in recoveries, up $400 million over last year. While that represents a significant percentage increase from FY 2022, the total continues the recent trend of lower annual recoveries. After a decade during which DOJ recovered at least $3 billion annually, total recoveries have fallen below $3 billion in three of the last four most recent fiscal years. Multiple stakeholders, including health advocacy groups, scientists, small businesses, and environmentalist organizations, are encouraging the Supreme Court to uphold the 40-year-old Chevron Doctrine, which allows courts to defer to the executive branch's interpretations of law when a dispute arises over the implementing regulations. In Loper Bright Enterprises v. Raimondo, the plaintiffs are challenging a National Marine Fisheries Service rule that requires fishing vessels to partially subsidize federal compliance observers who accompany them on their voyages. For more details on the dispute and what the outcome could mean for federal contractors, you can find my interview with Arnold and Porter's Kristen Ittig in the June 27th episode of Bonafide Needs at the same site where you found this episode. And finally, the House of Representatives has a new speaker, but the prospects for must-pass legislation, including spending bills and the National Defense Authorization Act, remain unclear. To discuss these developments and what they mean for you, I'm joined by Arnold and Porter partner Mark Epley and policy advisor Jessica Monahan. Mark and Jessica, welcome to the podcast. Let's take a moment to introduce you to our listeners first. Uh, Mark, why don't you go? Very good, Bill. Thanks for having us. I'm Mark Epley. I'm a partner with the legislative and public policy practice at Arnold and Porter. 
I spent most of my career in public service at uh, Department of Justice and a Department of Defense, and the balance of my time on, on Capitol Hill in roles that included um, general counsel at HASC and leading investigations at the Financial Services and the Ways and Means Committee, I capped off my career as counsel to House Speaker Paul Ryan. And Jess? Thank you for having us, Bill. Um, so my name is Jessica Monahan. I'm a policy advisor in our legislative and public policy group at Arnold and Porter. I help lead our appropriations practice for the practice group. And I also have a, a background in transportation and infrastructure funding. Spent my career, started working for two U.S. senators and um, worked in a number of multi-client firms, eventually found myself and Arnold and Porter three and a half years ago, and um, sort of in the interim of that experience, also served as the transportation policy director at the National Association of Counties. Excellent. Well, welcome both of you. So after several weeks of drama, we have a new House speaker. What does this shakeup really mean, and why should government contractors care about this? Well, Bill, this uh, I'll try to move through this question with some uh, d- speed because it could uh, quickly bleed into our entire time together. I guess first, how is it and why did uh, House Speaker Kevin McCarthy come to be removed? So Kevin McCarthy, uh, long sort of in the campaign to be Speaker of the House. Ultimately, the Republicans took the House in this last election. As folks know, it took 15 votes on the floor of the House to actually win the election. And what's unique about that is the backroom stuff typically happens in the backroom. In this case, you had a number of members that very much wanted to have a public uh, conversation about the things that they required of a speaker in order to to, uh, give him their vote. Uh, One of the things that he acceded to, that's Kevin McCarthy, was this mechanism that allowed even one member to raise a procedural opportunity for the whole House to vote on a question of whether he should continue uh, as Speaker or not. And that was something he acceded to and was left as a vulnerability. Ultimately, as uh, Republicans were working through their appropriations bills and it became clear that a government shutdown at the end of this fiscal year was imminent, Speaker McCarthy gave an opportunity to vote on a particularly sort of conservative approach to stopgap spending, and the com- his conference declined to take that up. So he turned to a, a more uh, conventional stopgap spending bill, and that was enough to set off a small group of members. It really only would take four or so, but it was eight that insisted on a vote before the House. Those eight were joined by the Democrats, and they removed Speaker McCarthy. I don't think that was fundamentally an ideological move because a lot of the ideological things were worked out in the initial voting for Kevin McCarthy in January. What brings us now to the it, it was very difficult for the House uh, with that unexpected dislocation to come up with someone to replace him. And is, that's that what led to the three weeks of, of various candidates uh, being proposed and disposed of, ultimately landing on Mike Johnson. He's a bit of an unknown quantity. He's served on Hask, has some sophistication there, but he's he's just came to serve starting in 2017. What does it mean for contractors? As I mentioned, I work for House Speaker Paul Ryan. Speaker Ryan got, was was drafted from the Ways and Means Committee where he was chair to be speaker. Uh, it wasn't a job that he wanted, but he actually had a pretty large and sophisticated team in place. He had a campaign apparatus that was in part built during his time as vice presidential candidate with Mitt Romney. He had a a significant, sophisticated staff from the budget committee 
that he brought over to Ways and Means. And so at least in the policy space, he had a lot of capacity to bring with him to the speakership. And even then it was a tough, tough learning curve. So I think one significant thing will be Speaker Johnson, untested, however talented he is, will face some real challenges without having a full operation. And it seems likely that that will cause him to rely upon the leader, Steve Scalise, his fellow uh, member from Louisiana, for a lot of the things necessary to run the House. I'll stop there. There is quite a lot going on. So notwithstanding all the political turmoil, what does Congress have to do by the end of the year? What what are the must-pass bills? Uh, Funding, funding, and more funding. Um, I think that's probably the best place to start, Bill. So as Mark mentioned, uh, at the end of September, Congress passed a continuing resolution or a CR that got us until November 11th. So we have, what, 18 days by my estimation until either Congress has to miraculously pass all 12 bills through both chambers and reconcile the differences and come to an agreement on the remainder of funding for FY24, or the more likely scenario, which is to pass yet another continuing resolution, which is actually what new Speaker Johnson has has alluded to, that this is necessary, which is a little bit surprising right out the gate that that's the position that he is taking, considering that is what ultimately led to McCarthy's demise. But there's an acknowledgement that there's a a whole lot of work still to be done on the appropriations front, um, not just in the House, but also in the Senate. And on top of that, um, we have a few other bills related to funding that need to be addressed. Um, There's a a push for a supplemental appropriations package, so essentially kind of emergency funding. And Johnson is taking a unique position and approach to that as well, calling for that to be offset, um, which is highly unusual when it comes to emergency spending. This would create kind of a new precedent that ultimately could have implications for uh, future supplemental bills and could also make the package even more divisive if they pick an offset that isn't, you know, somewhat benign. So Speaker Johnson has proposed bifurcating aid to Ukraine and aid to Israel. And that's a very different approach than what's been proposed in the Senate. Uh, It's also different than what the White House has proposed. They sent over a supplemental appropriations request to the Congress recently that included over $100 billion dollars in appropriations funding that would be outside of the CR um, and regular FY24 appropriations. That would include both aid for Ukraine and Israel, funding for the border, other natural disasters and domestic priorities. So we have to get through all these different tests for appropriations, but beyond appropriations, the farm bill needs to be addressed. The NDAA needs to be addressed. And the FAA bill um, was extended until the end of December, and we don't appear any closer to resolution on that front as well. And Mark, maybe you have thought of other things, but I was just reviewing earlier um, Speaker Johnson and his his pursuit of the speakership put out a dear colleague in October that outlined his schedule and his ambitions for the legislative calendar over the next year. And that's where he's really focused. I know there are other things that people probably have both on the, on their wish list and must pass list for this year, but those are sort of the, the four areas I would argue that are most likely to get addressed before the end of the calendar. I think that's right, Jess. Uh, I think that there there may be some uh, listeners that are interested in the um, 
the reauthorization of Section 702, the uh, intelligence community's authority to surveil foreign persons on foreign soil. So one, we find this drama very interesting and can talk about it for some time, but we also want to make it pertinent to the listeners why you should care. One thing that's notable about the NDAA, that's one of the things sort of the must do, is that all indications seem that the, the House and the Senate are on track to put that bill together and to present it to the president. It can be done by the 1st of December. All through the the challenges the Senate faced, which we'll talk about in a moment, to, to sort of generate its own appropriations bill, and all through the uh, very public drama in the House to find a speaker, the professional staff of the House Armed Services and Senate, Senate Armed Services Committee continue to work their process. They've got, I know from firsthand experience, they have an amazing milestone system that they follow uh, very closely, and they continued all the work of, of conferencing their respective bills during that time. And so they will have worked through most, most all of their issues. There are a couple thorny things left for the the so-called four corners, right? That'd be the chairs and the ranking members of Haskins Ask to work through, maybe including money for uh, traveling for reproductive health issues or uh, transgender care. These kinds of things will be thorny issues to work through. But but it's our sense that that bill is coming together without the drama that we've seen elsewhere. With all that on Speaker Johnson's plate, you know, spending the NDAA, everything, do you have any insight into his plan for getting that done? Like, how is he going to move those bills forward? I can, I can speak to the appropriations side and dive a little bit deeper into some of the things I already touched upon. But one thing we should probably add for context is Johnson is walking into this process midstream, but also in sort of unprecedented times, given the passage of the Fiscal Responsibility Act in June, which helped us avoid colliding into the debt ceiling. So what happened with that bill is there were agreements set up by McCarthy and the White House and Democratic leadership in the Senate where the appropriations process for FY24, what we're currently working on, would be set at FY23 levels. Now, there is, you can, it depends on your viewpoint. This is either a carrot or a stick. There's some sort of incentive that if Congress were to get their work done on by, for FY24 by the end of this year, so before January 1st, then they can, you know, kind of go about it as they so please, as long as they're working within those budget caps. If they fail to do that, there's an automatic 1% sequestration applied. So it'd be a 1% reduction from FY23 levels would go into effect January 1 for all subsequent appropriations and would give Congress until April to actually conclude their work on those appropriations bills. Now, it, Mark and I have had a lot of conversations about this. Who's, whose best interest is it that this reduction take effect? I, I Ultimately, I think Democrats would be more than pleased to accept a 1% reduction under FY23 levels compared to what actually Republicans in the House have been appropriating to, which is far below that level. And, you know, if we end up in a a situation where Congress fails to pass appropriations bills by April, and we just end up with a full year CR of FY23 minus 1%, 
Um, that would put in place for another fiscal year Democratic priorities that were passed under a Democratic majority with um, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker. So as a Democrat, that doesn't sound like, like the worst outcome, given all the consternation and conflict right now that exists between the two sides and the huge gaps that exist in spending levels between the House and Senate, in fact. But what it, that's just context, right? What, it, what is Johnson's real plan? So the House has passed five of its 12 appropriations bills on the floor. That, that's pretty miraculous given you know, how things have worked in the past. And part of the reason they've done this and the approach that they'll continue to take is this desire by at least a majority of the Republican conference to take up these spending bills as individual bills and not as combined packages or omnibus bills because it gives each member of the House the opportunity to vote up or down on a particular bill. And it also opens up an amendment process. Um, they argue it also makes it a bit more transparent. You're not trying to kind of collect votes and garner support and, and do that sort of whipping math in order to combine bills for passage or even just kind of expediting the process to get it done. You're being a bit more methodical and, and trying to pursue what we call regular order. So they're gonna continue down that path. The next set of bills will be considered this week. And the timeline that Johnson has set out actually has them working on appropriations, you know, passing the House bills into November. So that sort of assumes we'll end up with another CR and then continuing those negotiations process well beyond January. So kind of assuming that we hit that sequestration mark and continue on the process negotiating with the Senate. Uh, he seems to believe that he can unify the conference through this approach, but I think we're talking about things in a bit of a vacuum here, right? There, there's not a, a strong agreement within the conference on every particular bill. In fact, you know, in September, the House wasn't able to pass their ag appropriations bill on the floor. There wasn't enough agreement within the conference on the spending levels for that bill. Um, so that's not that they're just having to resolve conflicts with the, the Democrats in the House, which, you know, all of these bills, when they passed out of committee, were done so along partisan lines. There's no bipartisan support in the creation of these bills in committee, which is a very different scenario than we've seen play out in the Senate. So how this actually works in reality versus what was penned on paper in October and is in seeking the speakership, that's so hard to predict right now. But I will say uh, Punchbowl News came out with a poll this morning that said, you know, they polled lobbyists in D.C. and over 80 percent of the lobbyists polled predicted a government shutdown sometime between now and January. Depending on, on what happens with supplemental appropriations, we might find ourselves in that predicament in November or it could be something that plays out, you know, later on in the year as we continue along in the appropriations process. But the you know, speaker has an ambitious plan. Again, it's not necessarily rooted in the reality of process or politics, but we'll have to see how that works. And uh, I'll let Mark weigh in on NDAA. Well, I think the NDAA is one thing that's on track and is sort of following regular order and, and has sort of the least drama associated with it. Um, I, I think you mentioned the, the automatic 1% cut. I uh, just want to sort of make a global uh, observation. Back in 2011, when there was sort of this showdown as between the House Republicans and, and President Obama, part of that plan was this idea that if we can't reach accord, we're going to get automatic cuts, not just to domestic discretionary, but also to defense. And I think there was a thought on the part of the White House that 
there would be enough hawk vigor uh, to come up with a deal to, to guard against cuts to defense discretionary. And that wasn't the case. So I, I think whenever you have sort of this thing out there, like this potential automatic cut, there's a pattern in the past that Congress can slouch to that outcome. Of course, the CR is not good for anyone in uh, fiscal year 24 that's un starting to undertake new things. So Yeah, and Mark, we should probably mention too, since Johnson has been elected speaker, there there is recognition that the deals that were struck by McCarthy are not viewed as the deals that Johnson has to adhere to. So, you know, some of that doesn't apply, like the, the motion to vacate is still very much in place. The deals that were struck with the Freedom Caucus, the, the commitments he made to become speaker that are very much in alignment with the same commitments that McCarthy made. And I think he has to, to continue to adhere to those. But this whole concept with the Fiscal Responsibility Act, you know, that was a deal that was very controversial within the Republican conference in the House. And... I, I could see there being a desire to, you know, not necessarily continue down the path that McCarthy paved in that regard, but rather to forge his own path ahead. And that's where I think the schedule that he has laid out is, is indicative of the fact, you know, he he's, he's a, seems aware of the 1% sequestration, but maybe doesn't really care too much, doesn't really seem to to worry that that's going to have much of an effect at the end of the day and that they could proceed with you know, working on their priorities. And I, I mean, clearly he thinks he's confident they can get that done by April and come to an agreement with the Senate. But again, we're talking about things in a vacuum here. This is not, the bigger question is what happens when the House and the Senate meet and have to deal with their bills? And they, like I said earlier, could not be farther apart. Yeah, that, and that, that brings up another point. For the last few weeks, all eyes have been on the House, but of course the Senate has to take these up as well. What should we be looking for as the Senate uh, takes up consideration of these spending bills? Yeah, well, in a normal environment, I would say what's been happening in the Senate is not really remarkable. But considering the contrast with the House, it is remarkable that the Senate passed all 12 of its appropriations bills on a bipartisan basis through the Appropriations Committee and is readying them for floor action. There have been a couple hiccups um, that prevented the bills are being considered on the floor, but this week the Senate is poised to take up a minibus appropriations bill, which is a combination of the, the ag bill, the milk on VA bill, and the transportation, housing, and urban development appropriations bill, combining those three and voting on them this week. They were considering amendments last week, and then this week is, is time for votes. Now, that should pass the Senate. That's not a real concern. Other attention that should be paid to what's going on in the Senate is this discussions over the supplemental. Now, uh, Democrats in particular are viewing this upcoming deadline with the CR's expiration on November 17th as being one of their last opportunities to really legislate this year because there is acceptance that the next CR will probably be the last CR. And what that leads to is a much bigger question than what's in front of them. And that is, you know, opportunities to address things like aid for Ukraine and Israel, other domestic priorities, border spending, and some other um, domestic priorities that the Democrats care about, as well as the White House. So we're gonna probably see an effort, um, both with appropriators and with leadership to come up with a package that can be uh, somewhat 
agreeable on a bipartisan basis, or at least garner 60 votes in the Senate. And um, that's kind of what they're working through right now. There, there isn't a, a top line number per se. You know, the White House's request was over $100 billion, with a portion of that going to Israel, a larger portion going to Ukraine. But it was a very hard pill for Democrats in the Senate to swallow in September when they agreed to pass uh, a CR without Ukraine funding attached to it. I don't see that happening twice. Um, I think they really view this as maybe one of their last shots to get additional Ukraine funding with popularity and the Republican conference in the House waning for um, you know, additional funding for Ukraine without some sort of accounting for how funding has been spent to date, kind of a, a more long-term plan from DOD and on what the U.S. involvement might look like. And, you know, without those things, the longer this goes on, the harder it will be to pass that Ukraine funding. So the Senate's going to continue to work and work together. I mean, we saw a demonstration of bipartisanship with the uh, chair and ranking member, Senator Murray and Senator Collins of the Senate Appropriations Committee really do. It's just, you know, they haven't passed 12 bills through committee in five years. And that might not sound like the biggest deal, but it's far from a regularity in Washington to pass bills like that through through the committee, even though that is, you know, kind of one of the bare minimum functions and requirements of Congress. So we'll see that. You know, what they've done, um, you know, just like the House, there's been sort of a lack of commitment to the levels that were set in the Fiscal Responsibility Act. The Senate has actually exceeded the caps in some some instances. But I believe that they also know that the House is going to be very far apart from them. So when they do go to negotiate and ultimately reconcile the differences between these huge gaps in spending, that they're going to be definitely reducing their spending levels to get to a point where the House can take up their bills. But again, that would be taking a very optimistic viewpoint. The Senate's sort of working and pretending like the mess in the House is not going to affect them. We saw that play out over those three weeks where we didn't have a speaker. I think we'll just continue to see more of that. You know, McConnell and Johnson don't have a relationship as of yet. They definitely don't agree on Johnson's approach to Ukraine funding. And I think we'll see some more of that occur in the coming months. With all this uncertainty, uh, what should contractors be watching out for, Mark? Yeah, so I think that we, we mentioned this 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 crazy device motion to vacate, this ability for one one or more members to expose the speaker to a challenge. And we I don't know that we view that as a live threat to, to Speaker Johnson right now because he had laid out his plan for stopgap spending for everyone to, to, to see. And uh, because of that, or notwithstanding that, he was able to get the majority of the Republicans. So what's, what's, that, what's that mean? So I think the things that we want to look at, he's the speaker is focused on getting individual spending bills done. I think his big, big challenge will be getting a majority of the majority to vote for compromise versions when the Senate and the House split the difference, right? So they do energy and water. They did energy and water last last week. Okay, they have to split the difference with the Senate. Uh, maybe the Freedom Caucus or other fiscal hawks in the House are very pleased with the, the House spending levels, but compromising with the Senate is going to mean spending more money. And so it's an outstanding question about whether the speaker will be able to get the votes necessary to get those individual spending bills after they've been co conferenced done or not, whether that 
invites Democrat votes, which exposes Speaker Johnson somewhat like it's exposed Speaker McCarthy, because there's sort of a, a rule within Republican House Republican Conference that uh, I use quote rule that is um, you, you need at least the majority of the majority to pass a bill. So it reflects the majority's will. That that rule has been sort of made almost to be a require unanimity among the conference. So what does that mean? I think that means you can have shutdown as to individual sections of the government. So even if you do get a continuing resolution through, say, January 15th, right, but that ultimately there's an impasse as to a given bill, you could find shutdowns in different components of the government, not a general government-wide shutdown. I think that's I think that's a real risk. Uh, I guess the bottom line answer would be until that bill is presented to the president and he signs it, contractors really can't count on either the absence of a government shutdown or, for that matter, a CR, which might not allow them to undertake new activities in this fiscal year, fiscal year 2024. Definitely been a very exciting year uh, for uh, Congress and all of these bills. Uh, now, that said, 2024 is an election year when traditionally uh, everyone has thoughts about all of these things. What can we expect as the competition starts heating up next year in the presidential and House elections and the Senate and everything? Happy to jump in here and give you my thoughts first. And then Mark has even more experience than I do and kind of what happens when we shift into an election year. But you know, typically, an election year means less legislating uh, by Congress. They spend more time back in their districts and their states campaigning. But it's almost hard to imagine that less legislating could be done um, compared to what is what we've endured this this year. But I will say, I think politics becomes more prominent when it comes down to what is being discussed and debated on Capitol Hill because it's an additional campaign apparatus or platform for members who are for re-elections that includes everyone in the House and then a sizable amount of the Senate. You'll also see Senate leadership in particular taking very, you know, significant calculations on what they want to achieve and prioritize, knowing that, you know, for Democrats, it could mean the final moments of their majority if they were to lose a majority in 2024, Republicans might view it as an opportunity to make things more difficult for, for Senate Democrats in the hopes that they uh, obtain the majority after 2024. You know, think what happened to Merrick Garland and um, him being nominated for the Supreme Court, you know, Republicans saying at that time, hey, the people have spoken, we don't need to do anything, right? Let's wait until we assume the majority. Now, one example I want to give about how Congress is going to think about things from a legislative perspective, but particularly in the Senate um, with the election looming is the FAA reauthorization bill. So as I mentioned, the FAA bill is extended until the end of December. And the Senate is the holdup at the moment. The House has passed its bill through its chambers. And Senate can't even get to markup in committee, which is they're held up over three policy issues. And I won't I won't go too in depth there, but they can't get out of their own way. They haven't really made progress in negotiating over those three items. They were supposed to gavel in a markup in July and it just never happened. And we haven't really seen any real demonstration of 
you know, an effort to work towards getting to that ultimate markup, passing a bill through the Senate and reconciling the differences with the House, which the House bill actually did pass with wide bipartisan support, which is that certainly is remarkable. But if if I was a Senate Democrat and I looked at, you know, the forecast for 2024 and I knew that our majority could be compromised, I would say, man, I would like for the Democrats to be able to put their stamp on this policy, especially knowing that someone like Senator Ted Cruz would be the likely next chairman of the Commerce Committee. So bills like that, where Democrats, you know, want to have an impact on policy, even if they, you know, naturally are bipartisan bills, just looking at the dynamics of who could take over committees, what that might mean for various Democratic policy priorities. Those are the types of things that are going to start to dominate the decisions that are made about the legislative calendar and the priorities. It might compel things that have been stuck for some period of time to shake loose. Mark, you might have some other opinions, particularly on the House and how they might be viewing things the next year leading into the election. Yeah, so you know, we're in 2024, and as the election approaches, you can see the dip challenges before the McCarthy uh, speaker, speak, speaker McCarthy was removed. You can see the challenges both the House and the Senate were having passing the annual appropriations bills. It seems almost certain that you're going to be in a stopgap spending situation in later in 2024, right? That there's not going to be both the bandwidth or the political will to try to do the same exercise immediately be- before the election. So I think that one would expect some sort of stopgap spending bill that would take take uh, Congress through the election, which makes it all the more important for Congress ultimately to come to consensus on these spending bills for 2024 so that policy can be expressed through spending choices and that contractors can undertake new things. I think one interesting component about the you know the election year is House in particular might undertake certain messaging bills. One thing that we saw through the removal of Speaker McCarthy was there was a sizable group of moderate Republicans who won races, notwithstanding Biden winning that that particular congressional district, and their their willingness to bind together and push back on sort of ideological or sort of messaging bills that might undermine their ability to uh, to, to be reelected. So that's something to keep in mind. I think the final thing to keep to keep in mind is notwithstanding the sort of what we expect to be uh, less legislative activity next year, the committees are still organized and they can still do things to affect agency behavior. So I think that's the last thing that we, I think, might leave you with is that those those committees can, through the exercise of their oversight capacity, can come to affect agency behavior, which can in turn affect contractors and, and how they uh, are able to do business with the government. So that's a place where you'll continue to see activity notwithstanding uh, that difficulty of passing a law, notwithstanding uh, it being an election year. Well, we'll be keeping an eye on all these developments. Uh, Next few months should be interesting, to say the least. Mark and Jessica, thanks for joining me today for those insights. Bill here again. Thanks to Mark and Jessica for joining me today for that breakdown of what's happening on Capitol Hill. We'll continue to follow what transpires with the 2024 appropriations, NDAA, and other must-pass legislation. That's it for this episode of Bonafide Needs. If you're interested in reading further on any of the topics covered in today's podcast, you can find links in our show notes. To keep up with government contracting and legal developments every day, subscribe to PubK at pubkgroup.com. For additional expert analysis and insights, you can find multiple timely and informative blogs at arnoldporter.com.
Thanks for listening. You can find Bonafide Needs on your favorite podcast platform, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and YouTube. You can help us reach more listeners by liking, subscribing, or leaving a review. For Arnold and Porter and the PubK Group, this is Bill Olf. Until next time. Bonafide Needs is a joint production of and copyright Arnold and Porter, providing legal advice and thought leadership for government contractors, and the PubK Group, publisher of daily news and insights for government contractors and their counsel. This podcast is produced by Bill Olfer and Tina Chen.